Uh, thank you so much, Daniel. And after this is over today, I'm going to race you for those shoes. Leave uh, <laughs> me a pair like that. Um, thank you, trustees, for coming today for uh, our executive committee of the trustees. Uh, I saw Thomas White do something last week that I think we're going to do here one of these days in chapel. You can turn that thing down a little bit um, and uh, put our trustees up here, a committee of them, so you can get to know them. You don't get to know them like you should. And they are a remarkable, remarkable group of pastors and laymen that uh, make a ton of money. I mean, to serve on the board of trustees here, they just have to drive their trucks off full of money every time. And um, uh, they don't get a thing for it, and oftentimes not even a thank you. And uh, so I have the greatest appreciation in the world for them. They do a marvelous job in their churches, setting the kind of example that we all need to have. So thank you, trustees, for coming today. We're glad to have you here. Now, if you are called of God to be a pastor of a church, there are multiplied tasks that will fall to you. There are so many more things that you will have to do that we don't even think about to tell you about that uh, is unbelievable. But amid all of the accumulation of tasks, there are three primary assignments that a pastor has to his flock. The first of those is to pray religiously, strongly, concertedly, and definitely for the members of his flock. I suppose if I had to identify one thing that probably happens far too little in the average church, it would be that their people have heard their pastor pray. I now tell young men who are going out their first pastorate, they often say, what's the first thing I ought to do? And uh, I tell them, what you do is you set aside the first six months or however long it takes in your particular congregation you go to every single home represented in your church, even if only one person in the family is a member of the church, but you go there and you find out who they are, get all the children's names in your mind, and then you pray for them right there. Let them hear their pastor call your name in prayer. They will never forget it as long as they live, and they will know that you're praying for them on a regular basis. The second responsibility that any pastor has is to win the lost. You say, well, that's the task of the whole church, and you're exactly correct. But I want to tell you that no church will exceed its pastor in its soul-winning endeavor. If you're going to have a witnessing church, you're going to have to be a witness. If I am going to have a witnessing seminary, it's going to have to be the case that the student body and the faculty are aware of the fact that I witness on a regular basis. I don't have to brag about it. It's not something you do brag about. But they're going to have to be aware that it happens or they're not going to rise to that standard. And third responsibility you have is to teach them the Word of God and specifically to teach them doctrine. 
And doctrine has gotten to be a kind of a four-letter word for many people. It's a strange thing because it's the word didaskalia in the New Testament, which means teaching. And so the New Testament does, in fact, teach some truth. Uh, it teaches some truth that we can know for sure. There are many things we cannot know for sure, things that we have to interpret to the best of our ability, but there are some things we can know for sure. Uh, you won't have any difficulty with for by grace are you saved through faith, that not of yourself. That, it's very obvious what that means. And you expound it and you teach it, but there are things like that that the Bible is crystal clear about. Now, as we saw last week, Titus has been left on the island of Crete to appoint elders in every city to see to it that every place has a pastor. And the concluding word of that admonition in verse 9 is, holding fast the faithful word as he has been taught so that he may be able by sound doctrine both to exhort, remember that's to give an invitation, to call people to stand with him and to confront or convict those who are contradicting the word of God. Now we pick up with verse 10. For there are many insubordinate, both empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision, whose mouths must be stopped, who subvert whole households, teaching things that they ought not for the sake of gain. Would you Look at that word dishonest if it's in your translation, and that's not there in the Greek New Testament. It's just teaching what they ought not for the sake of gain, and I'll talk about that in a moment. One of them, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, and I'm going to give you a literal translation of that last word. Most people translate it lazy gluttons. Literally, in the Greek New Testament, it's unemployed stomachs. Now, that's a vivid translation, is it not? An unemployed stomach. Well, this testimony is true. Therefore, rebuke them shortly, uh, sharply that they may be sound in the faith not giving heed to Jewish fables and commandments of men who turn from the truth. To the pure, all things are pure, but to those who are defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure, but even their mind and conscience are defiled. Professing to know God, in works they deny him, being abominable, disobedient, and disqualified for every good work. So today I want us to consider the role of the pastor in the teaching of doctrinal truth. Look at what he says. The problem is that there are many insubordinate, idle talkers or empty talkers, deceivers, especially those of the circumcision. Now the word uh, that is translated insubordinate is a extension of the word hupotasso in the Greek New Testament. Hupotasso is a word which is used to describe wives who are to be subordinate to or obedient to their own husbands. Hupotasso. What does it mean? It's a military term. 
It is tasso, to line up, hupo, under. It's not something that the husband forces. Hey, woman, get in your place. That's foreign, totally foreign to a New Testament document. This is the action of a person who wants to build a great home. And so she voluntarily accepts the responsibility that her husband has to be the head of the house, Hupotasso. She voluntarily lines up under him. Now, my sweetheart here at the front, there is no natural in the inclination to Hupotasso. She is German and uh, she has Scotch. And what a combination that is. It means that there is no natural inclination to do this. Why on earth has she done it? She became convinced that the Bible said to do it. And so she has, through 53 years of marriage now, voluntarily done that for the most part. <laughs> and uh, when called is called to her attention that she may not have done it perfectly. She uh, gets a new heading in life and new determination, and she does it even when she knows for sure her husband is wrong. That's part of the reason I love her and plan to keep her. And so, uh, hupotasso. But this particular kind, the word has an alpha privative or an alpha negative in front of it. So it is ahupotasso, which means not or no. They are insubordinate. They are people who do not recognize authority that God has placed in their lives. Now, fundamentally, folks, you're going to come down to be a person who recognizes the authorities that God has put in your life and you submit to them or else you will be a person who rejects authority and you will end up rejecting God's authority also. So they are insubordinate. They are empty talkers. Oh, they talk a lot, but it's just pretty empty when it comes right down to it. And they are deceivers. And he especially marks out those of the circumcision because now by the time the epistle of Titus is written, the antagonism of the Jewish people has become apparent and they are um, impinging upon the life of the early church, and he says, watch out particularly for them. And then he adds, whose mouths must be stopped. Why do you have to stop their lives? Because they are subverting whole households, teaching what they ought not for the sake of gain. Now, here you go. Why is doctrinal teaching and preaching important? because the devil is out to subvert, turn upside down every household that he possibly can. The question for you is, how do you stop their mouths? There are a number of possibilities. I brought one with me today. It's wonderfully effective, um, and uh, especially when wielded by somebody who knows how to do it. And um, so, 
it, it will stop their mouths. It'll stop everything. And, and so it's very effective. And indeed, according to Balthazar Hubmeyer and the Anabaptists, there are two such swords available to the believer. One of those swords brings healing. The other brings death, if used in the right way. According to Balthazar Hubmeyer, both of those swords are entirely legitimate. One is the sword of the state, and the other is the sword of the man of God. You see, the word of God, according to Hebrews chapter 4, is sharper than a two-edged sword. There is no sword worn by a magistrate anywhere that is as powerful and as cutting and as revealing as the sword of the Word of God. So it may not look like a sword, but it is a sword. It reveals the innermost thoughts of any man. And that is the sword which you are going to use. Now, if you plan to use the other kind of a sword, then run for the presidency of the United States. Then become a congressman. Become a senator. Become a police officer. There is no harm in any of it. As a matter of fact, Paul makes clear in the book of Romans that the magistrate does not wear the sword in vain. And does stress that he is to use it to put down evil and to protect the good. And when he uses it wrong and uses it to put down the good, then as sure as the world, God's judgment comes upon him. But if it is your intention to use a sword in that kind of a way, don't go into the Lord's work. Go into the magistracy. Nothing wrong with it. Nothing evil about it intrinsically, but it is not God's way of stopping the mouths of those who are problems. Well, what are God's ways? Well, the sword of the Spirit is a two-edged sword. The first edge of that sword is given here when he says, whose mouths must be stopped to subvert whole households, teaching what they ought not for the sake of gain. The use of that particular part of the sword he has already elucidated in verse 9. Holding fast the faithful word as he has been taught, so that by sound doctrine, that is healthy doctrine, doctrine that brings health to the church, he may be able to both exhort, call the people to stand with him, and convict those who wish to do otherwise. There is no use of the sword that is any more profoundly employed than to preach the whole truth of God's Word. And I do mean the whole truth of it. One of the main reasons we emphasize text-driven preaching here is that if you're in a place about 30 years, you ought to have preached through the whole Bible. After all, it's all the whole counsel of God, is it not? Is there any of it that your people don't need? Is there any of it you don't need? Any of it you don't need to study? No, you need to, to study all of it, and you need to preach all of it so that the people know the Word of God. Dr. Criswell, my pastor over at First Baptist Dallas, had all the faults that any preacher would have, 
But I want to tell you what, he faithfully proclaimed God's Word over a period of 45 years. He preached all the way from Genesis to Maps. He did the whole thing. And uh, three years of that was in the book of Revelation alone. But the fact is that he preached the whole Bible. It's what Jerry Vines did. And he went out uh, in First Baptist Jacksonville in the book of Deuteronomy with the final chapel of, uh, chapter of Deuteronomy. And as he walked out the back door of that church for the final time, he was preaching the last chapter of Deuteronomy, the last of all 66 books through which he preached. Listen, folks, you are responsible for preaching the Word of God, which will do far more than you will ever believe it can do. One of the most amazing things about preaching the Word of God is where you faithfully preach it, somebody comes out and shakes your hand on the way out, you're standing at the back to get the accolades, and everybody tell you what a great job you did, and this person comes out and says, Pastor, I never saw it before. Thank you so much for showing me why it is that I need to love my husband more. Man, you were preaching about tithing. You didn't even mention loving your husband. How on earth did God? But that's what God does. God does things with the text of Scripture in the hearts and lives of your people, which you didn't do. You didn't even think about doing, but God did it just in the reading of the Word of God. Why is it that I have students up here reading the Word of God? Because I want them to learn how to do it effectively because in the reading of the Word of God alone, there is healing for those who, resist, who, who do not understand the ways and purposes of God. Your purpose, pastor, is to refute those who do not understand the Word of God by the faithful preaching and interpretation of the Word of God. I can't underscore how important it is. It is critical by all means do it. There's a second side, a second edge to that sword, and that is what the Anabaptists call the ban. We speak of it as church discipline. Here's what Balthazar Hubmayer said about it during the Reformation. Quote, See now, dear brothers, that there are two offices and commands of the ban and the secular sword are not opposed to each other since they are both from God. For the Christian ban frequently has place and authority, as for example, in many spiritual offenses against which the sword may by no means be used, when according to the occasion of sin there should be punishment. That Christ teaches us very clearly when he says to the adulterous woman, Woman, hath none condemned thee? And she says, No one, Lord. And he answers, neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. Now mark that Christ says, woman, hath no one condemned you? As if he would have said, if condemnation had fallen on you according to the law, God announced for adultery, I should say nothing to the judge, for it is a commandment of God my Father that they, who shall, that they should stone the adulterer. But since no one has condemned you, neither will I condemn thee, for it is not my office. I have not been appointed as a judge, remember that, but as a savior. Therefore go hence and sin no more. That is my office to forgive sins and to command that men walk no more in sin. Hear them, dear brothers, how Christ so 
properly exercises his own office and lets the judicial office stand at its own value, so must the church also do with its ban and the government with its sword, neither usurping the other's office. This is from a book called On the Sword in which Hubmeyer argues that under no circumstances is anybody ever to be coerced or put to the sword for his faith, whatever it may be. Hubmeyer argued that he should not be put to the sword if he's an atheist. He has a right to be an atheist. Who can read the human heart? Who can punish anybody for the concerns of his heart. That will be judged by one who alone can see the heart and the mind in the day of judgment. It doesn't matter if a person's a Muslim. It doesn't matter if a person is a Hindu. It doesn't matter if they are some other denomination. We are to present the claims of Christ and the purity of the doctrine of Christ, but under no circumstances do we ever use coercion or the sword. Balthazar Hubmeyer is an author who believed in freedom of the faith. And we as Baptists have always been the champions of that, and we must never be anything else. When it comes to church discipline, however, there is an action call for. It's very plainly illustrated in Matthew chapters 18 and 19. Our Lord presents what is to happen. You don't have the elders do it. You don't have the deacons do it. The whole church is involved in church discipline. And the whole thing is set up in such a way that it'll never reach that final point of exclusion. You go to the person individually first with a problem. If he doesn't hear you, you take somebody with you who knows and understands the situation, and you present that to them. And third, if they don't hear the two of you, then you take it to the church to adjudicate the matter. And if the person is still unrepentant, then the church as a whole excludes them from the Lord's table, as you saw me do earlier this semester, in a uh, situation where we were showing how you do church discipline. It's a whole church. Let me tell you what, when it's just the elders that do it, half your congregation is going to be questioning whether or not you did the right thing. They're going to have all kinds of views. They're not told what's going on. And so their imaginations run wild. And you find out that this person did horrible things that he didn't even do. But because the church doesn't know, you say, well, man, that's dangerous for the church to become involved. Let me tell you what, it's dangerous. It's dangerous for the church not to be involved. When the church is involved in church discipline, everybody is sitting out there thinking, oh, my goodness, this is serious business, this business being in church. Let me tell you what, when I first got to Crystal College, George Davis, who still lives over there in Dallas, a dear friend of mine, he came the second week I was president, and he handed me his resignation. I said, George, I've only been here two weeks. I, I didn't know I'd done anything to you. What was this about? He said, well, he said, to be honest with you, he said, I've known now for about a year that I'm not saved. I said, George, you have a Ph.D. in Old Testament. 
from the same seminary I graduated from. What do you mean you're not saved? He said, nobody ever got saved by doing a Ph.D. in Old Testament. I said, well, I suppose that's true, but I said, how you've pastored churches. He said, nobody ever was saved by pastoring a church. Uh, so, okay, that's true, I guess. Well, I said, what have you done about it? He said, well, nothing until last night. Last night, the conviction became so great that I'd been baptized when I was very small and didn't understand what I was doing and never received Christ, that I asked my wife to get down by the bed and pray with me, and I would ask Christ to save me, and he did. And he said, uh, I thought we'd just stay quiet about it, but he said, uh, I got thinking about it, and, and I, I know you've had a lost Old Testament professor on your faculty now for some time, and I, I know that's wrong, and so... I brought you my resignation because Sunday morning I'm going to go forward during the invitation and present myself profession of faith and a candidate for baptism. Well, I tore the, the resignation up and I said, George, did it ever dawn on you that I'd much rather have a saved Old Testament professor than a lost one? <laughs> and I said, you're doing exactly the right thing. You need to go forward and make that profession of faith. Now, what is amazing is what happened next. George Davis went forward in Sunday morning service, made his profession of faith, followed the Lord that Sunday night in <laughs> baptism. In the following several weeks, over a 16, 18-week period, there were 17 more men who came forward and presented themselves and said, I've never been saved. And I saw George Davis do it. If he can admit it, and he can say that and seek the face of the Lord, I'm going to too. Now look, when there comes a moment in church discipline, when you've gone through the whole thing to avoid this moment, but you come down to the point where the behavior of this person cannot be tolerated in the church of the living God, and the church excludes them from the fellowship of the church, your people are all sitting there thinking, my goodness, we just excluded that guy for what I've been doing every day for the past 20 years. And it hits home. Now, you say... Mr. President, you're talking about things that don't happen anymore. Yes, that's true, but I'm telling you, if you want to have a New Testament church and do it God's way, somebody needs to start doing it right, and you're just the folks that I believe ought to do it. So their mouths must be stopped. How do you stop them? One of two ways. You preach the truth, and if they don't respond, then you use the ban and you exclude them from membership of the church. Now, notice what they're doing. They're teaching things that they ought not for the sake of gain. Now, you've heard me on this before. I want to tell you one more time. Don't you dare let me hear you ask in a pulpit committee what you're going to get paid. It doesn't matter what you're paid. You're not doing this for money. If nobody will pay you any money, then do it for free. My goodness, what on earth are we anyway? We are not employees. We are called prophets of God. Now, if a pulpit committee has any sense whatever at all, they're going to bring up the subject and they're going to tell you. But it doesn't matter in the end whether you're paid much or little. or you, if, you, if you're paid much, you're only paid much so that you can give much to the kingdom of God. We're not trying to get rich in this life. We are building up riches on the other side. 
We want, we want to be sure that we build up riches in the kingdom to come where they'll never be taken away, where moth and rust does not corrupt and thieves don't break through and steal. Everything you have could be gone tomorrow anyway. You're not doing it for money. Money is not the issue. I have people write me all the time and say, well, you know, they just don't pay enough. That's not the issue. The issue is, has God called you to this church? If I could just rear a generation of young men who would do it for the sake of Christ and not for anything else, we'd revolutionize this world. They do it for gain. When I used to go to the hospital in New Orleans, I'd go in, pray for a man, ask God to enter in and heal him. Almost every time when I'd get ready to leave, he'd say, well, hold on, uh, Father, let me give you some money here. First time that happened to me, I said, do what? Let me give you some money here. I didn't realize that most folks that went in to see somebody in the hospital expected money for it. I my great joy to tell them, and God didn't send me here to get your money. He sent me here to pray God's intervention in your life, and that's what I'm going to do. And uh, they were always shocked and gave me an opportunity to share Christ with them. Listen, don't do it for gain. He says, one of them, uh, their own prophet, a man by the name of Epimenides, by the way, and, and let me just pause and say that the apostle Paul knew a relatively obscure poet who was born on the island of Crete. You know what that tells me is Paul did his homework. Some of you have the same attitude I had about this time and when I was in college. Philosophy is a four-letter word. You don't know anything about philosophy. It'll corrupt you. No, it won't corrupt you if you don't let it. If you read more of the Bible than you do of philosophy, you'll be fine. But let me tell you, you need to know it. You need to know what's in the enemy arsenal so that you can effectively refute it. And so, yes, you need to know philosophy, you need to know English, you need to know history, you need to get everything here. That's the reason I, uh, Dr. Blazing and I work so hard to create the particular program we have in the college right now. Now, if you're not interested in learning and knowing and being ready, you don't want to go to that college program. But if you really want to know and be prepared for ministry, then you go to that college program, okay? It'll do wonders for you. What you'll come out knowing. Well, Paul, he knew Epimenides here. Nobody else knew Epimenides much, but he did. And so he say, quotes Epimenides. Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, and unemployed stomachs. Sound like our own generation, doesn't it? Well, that's true. That's who you're sent to minister to. It's okay. For him to say that about them, those, that just means that they are wonderful opportunities for the evangelization of Christ. This testimony is true. Therefore, rebuke them short, sharply. Doesn't mean in an ugly way, in an unkind way. It just means don't spruce it up. I mean, you can say, well, if, if you don't come to Christ, there, there won't be too good of an end for you. Why don't you say, if you don't come to Christ, you're going to go to hell? You can say it with a broken heart, 
but just go ahead and tell the truth like the gospel gives it, okay? Rebuke them sharply so that they may be sound in faith, not giving heed to Jewish fables and commandments of men. We don't know for sure what he was talking about, but anybody that's ever read either the Babylonian Talmud or the Jerusalem Talmud knows that there is an awful lot of Jewish fable thrown in there. And so from such turn, uh, turn away to the pure all things are pure. You know, is that, well, I'm saved by grace, so I can do anything I want to. No, this is not antinomianism. It just means that to the one who's been born again and saved, his whole inclination now is toward purity, and eventually that will be made perfect in his glorification. But by the same token, to those who are defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. Even the goodness that he has in his life will ultimately be shown to be at fault. Nothing is pure. Even his mind and his conscience are defiled. In fact, and the last verse, they profess to know God, but in works they deny him being abominable, disobedient, and disqualified for every good work. Paul Tillich, Systematic Theology, three volumes in one. Yeah, I know you've never read Tillich, but the fact of the matter is you probably ought to read a little of it just to know what confusing theology looks like. Um, nevertheless, it's quite a book. Uh, uh, let's see, I forgot here, 430-some-odd pages, Systematic Theology. Uh, Paul Tillich, one of Jimmy Carter's favorite theologians and very influential in the market of theologians, even until today in liberal seminaries, they would have to, to read this. For one reason, you ought to be aware of it. So Paul Tillich, he was uh, an interesting man. He was born on May the, August the 20th, 1886. He uh, did some good things. He opposed the Third Reich and got run out of Germany. And so he came to Union Theological Seminary in New York City. In 1951, he wrote the first volume of this. He then moved to Harvard University where he taught in 1955 and then finally to the University of Chicago where he finished his career. In 1963, published volume three and then they put it all together in this heavy tome. And he died on October the 22nd, 1965. Now, what I want you to know is that in March of 1924, he married his second wife. Her name was Hannah, and she soon found out what Paul Tillich was. But she never said anything about it until after Paul Tillich's death. Then Hannah Tillich wrote this book, From Time to Time, a history of her walk with theologian Paul Tillich. I wouldn't even dare read some of it to you, but... I will read enough for you to get the picture. Quote, I returned to the house. The sun was going down. She's coming home from his funeral. Walking upstairs to open the desk that he had kept locked. I used to find small notes, short letters, 
all sorts of signs from his various lady friends. I had even written a few sentences about his need to be discovered by his wife while at the same time remaining secretive. Later, I had found the pornographic letter under his blotter, left there when he departed for a lecture trip one morning early. I'd been so troubled that I had shown it to a psychologist friend. He advised me to burn it. I did not. It seemed to me that this was one sign of his real life. The expression of his needs, which I could no longer share with him. The overstraining of an intellect, of an intellect to live with the demon. It seemed that to me in my latter days that the demonic was something you could dissolve in meditation. I unlocked the drawers and all of the girl photos fell out. Letters and poems and passionate appeal and disgust. She wrote a poem about it, which appears in the early part of the book. Quote, how many times at night, when you profess to love me in flesh and blood embrace, have you committed treason at my breast, grafting another's image on my face? And all those tender joys were dim and shoddy because you steered them down a shadow stream, loving a stranger's body in my body and squandering your kisses on a dream. You see, Paul Tillich believed in God. He had to. He was a very smart man. And he knew that you could not account for everything in the cosmos without a first cause. So he believed in God, but I'm sorry to have to tell you he didn't believe that God was personal. He believed that if you said God was personal, it was idolatry, or at least that's what he said. He said that to say anything about God other than that he is the infinite ground of all being was to be idolatrous. And why did Paul Tillich take a position like that? Well, he had to have a God to explain why anything existed at all. But number two, he had to have an impersonal God because his behavior demanded it. He could not face a personal God before whom he would have responsibility. So after his death, it all comes to life. What so many had suspected to be true was a thousand times worse than they had thought. Professing to know God in works they denying, being abominable, disobedient, and disqualified for every good work. I want every one of you to make it in God's work. But I want to tell you today that if you're not going to back up your theology with your action, leave the ministry now. Don't do this great harm to the church of God. Make it count for Christ forever. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, it's a somber note to begin and end on, I know. But Lord, these are your precious called young people 
who now must finish their education and unleash themselves on a hostile and lost world. I want to pray that they will always remember the quotation from Hannah Tillich, at least enough so that they may determine that there'll be nobody left in the world who could ever give that kind of testimony about them. May our men so live that they will honor God with their doctrine and they'll honor God with their life action. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.